This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots to talk about today in regard to the electricity file. Uh, of course, there's uh, uh, in the House today, it came, or in the ledge today, rather, it came out that uh, I guess uh, $11.7 million of the $11.9 million, which was allotted to help people who were struggling with their electricity bills, was spent on advertising and consultants. Oh, yeah. So uh, where that leaves people who are applying for the programs, uh, not too sure. Also, uh, there's chatter. Patrick Brown has been saying that uh, you're aware that uh, the wind uh, farm that uh, was off, uh, I guess, south uh, central Ontario and was eventually canceled. uh, Patrick Brown saying because it was in a liberal riding. Uh, the company, that contract is still viable, apparently. It hasn't been cancelled, but it has been, uh, I guess, put on hold with a moratorium that the Liberal government put in place saying that they didn't want all of a sudden to do offshore wind, um, but we really didn't hear why. I heard it was like bad for your health or something like that, but how can they be bad for your health offshore but not onshore? Anyway, I digress. They they canceled the program and they just paid this company $25 million uh, last week. And the rumor is that's going to go way up. To talk more about all of this, Parker Galland is with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, and he is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. And you? Good. Thanks for taking the time uh, to join us. Have we heard the last of this story on in regard to the offshore wind farm? I don't think so, no. I mean, I, the contract, as, as uh, the ruling came out, um, it says that it's still valid, and Windstream is making noises that they're looking forward to completing the project and and putting those uh, wind turbines up. So, Where I, does that leave the Ontario government when they said it's not going to continue, or at least there's a moratorium? What are we waiting for, or are we? Well, we're waiting for this, you know, the, the, the uh, moratorium was... Uh, supposedly canceled because they were concerned about environmental effects on the Great Lakes. Now, um, you know, the study was to be done by the Ministry, I believe, of Natural Resources, but nothing has come out of that. So we're still waiting for that, and I think it's six years now we've been waiting for it. So, Well, really, can they come out and say that they're bad for the water if they're good for the land? I mean, well, wouldn't that sort uh, yeah, of... Con- I mean, that's if, they, if it proves... Be- <laughs> wondering. If it's proving uh, I mean, to be bad for people on water, then how would it be good for people on land? Yes, right. Well, it's, you know, it's the visual thing. It's the site. I mean, the funny thing is I lived in one of the ridings uh, in Scarborough, off the Scarborough Bluffs. That was... Uh, where where offshore wind turbines were you know were uh, proposed by Toronto Hydro, they actually had a met station out there in Lake Ontario, in front of the bluffs, where they were testing the winds as well because they wanted to put some industrial wind turbines offshore too, but it was fought and um, it was fought just prior to an election right in 2011. Of course, that's when the moratorium suddenly um, came out and the government. You know, at the time, which was the Liberal government, said, oh, we want to have a, a study of this because, you know, uh, there could be effects on, on uh, and stirring up, I think it was uh, the former uh, Minister of Natural Resources, Gerritsen, that said that, oh, we might be stirring up some mercury and other poisonous sort of substances <laughs> in the bottom of the lake. So it was an excuse, I think, you know, to sort of uh, save those, seats those liberal writings that were right there on the bluffs. So how will the Ontario government deal with this moving forward? Because clearly this deal isn't dead. So how will they get out of it? Uh, well, I'm going to have to hope that this report actually says something to the effect that, you know, there is damage being, well, there will be damage being caused by this. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing is, I don't think there are, I think there's one industrial wind turbine that is in fresh water. And that, I think, is in Sweden or in you know, one of the Scandinavian countries. But other than that, the offshore wind turbines that have been you know, placed around the world are all in salt water. So um, I, you know, I don't know whether or not they can sort of hang their hat on that or whether or not this study will actually produce interesting information. You know, so if the study says there is some sort of health out, uh, hazard, does that get them out of the contract? I don't think they can come up with the health hazard hazard as as the reason why uh, you know it's got to be a visual thing or it's got to be damage damage to the natural environment those are the only things that i can see that they can hang their head on the visual thing is 
you know, they're just as ugly, if you will, on land as they are offshore. Ex- well, exactly. The same arguments apply offshore that would apply onshore, wouldn't right. they? So, uh, unless they're so far out in the middle of Lake Ontario that nobody can see them, they're, they're you know, bound up to, uh, you know, have the same effect. And uh, I just, I, you know, I don't know whether or not they can get out of it now, whether there is a legitimate case for Windstream to go forward and sue for the full amount of the contract. It's, it's hard to know. Uh, I mean, you know, they could pass legislation, um, presumably, that would say, you know, we've got enough industrial wind turbines now, we have enough renewable energy, we can cancel the whole thing. But they don't want to back away from, from the uh, Green Energy Act, it appears, you know. The last uh, thing, and, that, and even if they did back away from it, Parker, I mean, they would still be on the hook for what they've signed contracts with that company. No, they could be, but uh, the thing is, you have to prove, you know, what your losses really are. Right. And you know, if if they're going to, if those companies that sue the government go after sort of foregone profits, I'm not sure that the courts are going to award them those those foregone profits, if you will. Hmm. So, you know, they might be able to get out of those, you know, they might be able to, you know, cancel those contracts based on the monies that had been expended up to that point in time, perhaps mm. with, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars thrown into the into the pot. But I think what Windstream were doing in terms of, you know, the awards they've got, they had basically invested all that, you know, the 25 million bucks. They'd gone through a lot of uh, studies that had a lot of consultants that they hired and spent money mm-hmm. to, you know, place those units um, in into uh, the Great Lakes or into Lake Ontario. And it was just off of Kingston, off the uh, mm-hmm. shoals up here. And uh, so the money I think that has been awarded to them, the twenty-five million, was what they claimed. Uh, on top of that, they got, of course, all their court costs or their legal costs, which were another three million dollars too. So I don't know whether they'd have a leg to stand on in terms of saying, "Oh, we, you know, we, we were suing for five point two billion dollars, and mm-hmm. that's what we expect to get." That's kind of so. The fact that they've already got twenty five million because they convinced a court that this was done through or for political means—that's that could be all they get. That could be all they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so but yeah, yeah that would be my view at least. Uh, and you know. Only time will tell whether or not they pursue that uh, that avenue of going after them. So. so, if in fact that's probably, or in here, you know, in in our uneducated guess here, that uh, as you mentioned, we're not lawyers, that this is all they get. Then how can these costs? Uh, uh, Patrick Brown saying that the cost of this stalled project they could still go way up. Well, uh, I mean, if they if they don't cancel the contract, it is still valid. Yeah. So the company could suddenly turn around and start, you know, spending money mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, start, you know, pouring the cement and, you know, and, and buying the materials that are required to put those units up and in Lake Ontario. And if they did that, you know, they could point to their valid contract that hasn't been canceled. And then, you know, the government could be in trouble. I mean, it's like the, the same thing just happened. I mean, you know, uh, he canceled, not he, he didn't cancel those thousand megawatts of renewable energy that he said we were going to, to get. He simply suspended them. Yeah. You know, why did he suspend them? Well, he suspended them perhaps because IESL had gone through the process of, of um, analyzing the potential bidders and had selected certain bidders. So if he'd canceled it, my guess right. is all those bidders that sort of sought their qualifications would have mm-hmm. turned around and said, we want to be paid back for all the effort we put into, you know, getting ourselves in, in position to be able to bid on those 1,000 megawatts. So, you know, I, I, you know, suspension is is not canceling anything. and, and It just pushes it over to the next government to deal with, perhaps. Yeah, it's just sort of pushing it out in the future. Uh, you know, we don't want to make a decision because if we make a decision, it might turn out bad for us, and we got an election coming up. So, uh, ch- chatter coming out today that uh, the eleven million dollars that they had, the government had allotted to uh, help people uh, with lower incomes with their electricity sp- uh, bills, they spent almost the whole thing on consulting and advertising about the program. What are your thoughts on that? Well. I, uh, 
when my wife and I are listening to the radio and I'm in the car or something, and I hear one of those ads come on, you know, sort of from usually from the Ontario Energy Board because they're the ones that are administering the program. I get quite upset because they always say, you know, paid for by the province of Ontario when we all know it's the taxpayers of the province that are paying for it. And in the case of, of that OESP, the Ontario Electric, Electricity Support Program, my view has always been that that should be part of community and social services, that ministry, because mm. what we're doing here is they've created the energy poverty by raising our rates so high that they've driven people to the point where they are in energy poverty and need help, well, they should be getting the help from the, the, you know, the Ministry of Community and Social Services. Interesting. They should be getting it from other ratepayers. That's the, always been my contention. This is what Energy Minister Glenn Tebow had to say about the $12 million. I would like an answer as to whether or not you believe $9 million was an appropriate amount $12 million to, to have 145,000 families and hopefully more to sign up for this program is money well spent. Uh, <laughs> is it well spent? Or, I mean, do people who are in energy poverty, uh, do they not know they're there? No. I mean, the, the funny thing is they had what is known as the LEAP program, Low Income Energy Assistance Program. It's still in effect. And what, what that is all about is 0.12% of gross revenues of each distributor in the province should go to support people living in energy poverty. That's been around for, I think, five or six years since Brad Duguid was the Minister of Energy. And so there has been a program in place. It was limited, though, because they only sort of handed out about 10 or 12 million bucks. It was small, you know, small mm -hmm. potatoes. But then we've had such growth in the, in the people living in energy poverty that they've had to come up with something to solve this problem. And as we've seen recently, they haven't solved it. You know, there are still people, you know, that, okay, you're going to get 35 or $40 a month in support of your program, but their hydro bills have gone up by twice as much. Yeah. So they're still in energy poverty. Uh, it doesn't seem like this is going away anytime fast. I mean, it has jumped in and out of the news in the past, but it seems to be sticking this time. Uh, obviously, rates are going up again at the beginning of November. Uh, do you think this is going to continue the way it is right through till the election? Uh, I can't see it going away. Uh, you know, I mean, basically, the Liberals would have to back back off the Green Energy Act. They'd have to say, okay, we're canceling the Green Energy Act. We're no longer going to uh, you know get the balance of what we're looking for in, in respect to renewable energy and we're going to do sensible things and we're going to let the people who know something about the electricity system actually run it we'll just stand back and make sure they don't make too many mistakes like we've done but i can't see the current government sort of backing away and saying that uh obviously kathleen Wynne called uh, ontarians bad actors uh also, uh, in uh, the ledge today, uh, they were saying that the reason that the, uh, the opposition knew about this program is that they had spent so much on advertising. Do you think, that's, do you think the, the public's had their fill of those sort of comments? I sure do. I mean, really, I think people have become very knowledgeable about the electricity bills just because most of the distributors now have gone to, you know, we're going to, instead of billing for a two-month period, they bill you for one month. Yeah. But you get the bill every month. And the reason why they've done that is because it's, you know, the bills have doubled yeah. since the Liberals have taken over. And if she, you know, blames us for what they've done, what they've created, uh, is just sheer madness. I mean, people aren't believing her anymore, and that's why her ratings are so low, I think. Parker Galan has been with us, Vice President of Win Concerned. Opposition members uh, in Parliament arguing that the $25 million cost of the stalled wind, uh, wind turbine project off of Kingston could be just the beginning. And, of course, uh, spending the majority of the money that was allotted for helping people with their electricity bills on advertising and consultants. Parker, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for Thank having you. me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Now it's um, e-health. You, you might remember if you go to your doctor, or if you've been for your uh, fit, annual physical, which you're not a, apparently you can't get annually anymore. I have a hard time getting in for an annual physical now, and I've had one every year of my life since I've been born. And now I can't get one because I'm considered healthy. 
Well, that's because I've been going for a medical every year, a physical. Now I can't get one because apparently it's a waste of money. I have to wait 18 to 24 months now. Well, something is growing inside of me that I may not know. Does that seem right? So when you go to your doctor, uh, you notice they're starting to transfer everything onto, uh, they're digitizing everything. They're, it's like they're, they're sitting in front of their keyboard and talking to you and entering it all in. Well, now there's thought that because Ed Clark, Ed Clark's the, uh, the guy that was looking at uh, LCBO and, and all those sorts of things, the, the TD guy and, and the sale of, uh, of portions of Hydro One and such. So he's, he's getting, uh, she's getting him to take a look at, at eHealth to see if he can somehow fix the screw up that they've created. And what has that? That is people worried that it's going to be privatized. And then if it goes to privatization, then will your data be sold? To talk more about all of this, Catherine Fife is with us, NDP MPP for Kitchener Waterloo and NDP critic for Finance and the Treasury Board and is with us now. Hello, Catherine. How are you today? I'm well. How are you doing, Scott? Good. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. It's a pleasure to join you. And I do... I. I feel the same way about you about that song that you do. As Remember well. that? I know those were the good old days. <laughs> like you hate to live in the past, but gee whiz, there was such a future back then. Now it's like kids can't even pay their tuition. There's no jobs. It's the we're paying a bazillion dollars for energy. What happened to the province of prosperity? Well, I mean, the liberals I think have had 13 years, and they've been steadily, you know, uh, inching away at at some of the progress that we have made. But you know, as you pointed out in your introductory comments, the cost of hydro is really one of the number one issues that we hear as MPPs. And and I know you do want to talk about e-health, as do I, but I'm sure you saw the report as well today that the government has spent almost most of the $12 million on a plan to bring discounts to low-income electricity customers and but 11.7 of that went to consultants. So it, it was. It's a discouraging day for us here at Queens Park, but we still, you know, we still try to hold this government to account. Scott. Uh, since you brought it up, Catherine, and again, this is we we just talked about this last segment as well, so we can continue to get your opinion on it. Uh, you know, here's a scenario where they've put this money aside to help uh, people cope with their electricity bills. If they've spent almost the whole portion on just consulting and, and advertising fees, where's the money coming from for the people who actually need help in the program? Well, and I think that's why you've seen three out of four of those, of those families, of those, of those customers who would have qualified to get the 30 or $50 a month taken off their electricity bills uh, not not access that program, and I should correct my record. It was 9.3 million was spent on consultants and 2.4 million on media and advertising. Okay. And this is a you know this is a theme that we continue to see here at Queens Park, Scott. Is that the government does the spin job, the consultants win, and then the people who were all supposed to be serving they lose out. And and I think that I think people have had it. The key issue though is that we need to get hydro costs down. The the base cost of energy needs to come down and you know navigating all of these special little programs that the liberals have created to make themselves look like they are finally listening to the people of this province is not obviously working for the people it is working for their friends and their insiders that they that they support through these lucrative contracts right it's got to the point now where uh, I feel I've got the feeling that instead of the government encouraging me they're attacking me last week it was we're all bad actors we're not putting our money where our mouths are per capita on on the cap-and-trade thing in our green energy. Um, the energy minister alludes today in the ledge that, you know, that nobody would have, uh, the opposition wouldn't have even known about these programs if we hadn't have spent so much money advertising them. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly. And when you do follow the money, I mean, as a finance critic, when you follow the money, you follow the real priorities. I mean, this government spent almost $70 million on advertising the ORPP. So it's become one liberal commercial here. And the good thing, though, is that people, I think, are catching on to it. But, I mean, our job as opposition members is to make sure that that money gets to the people of this province. And clearly, on the hydrophile, uh, by this example alone, you can see where the liberal priorities are. So, how you know, you brought up a point, people are talking about this, and we've been doing shows about this for years, it seems, but it, it, it seems different now. Are we at a tipping point? Why do you think we're there now? 
Well, I mean, the trust has been broken. Um, I mean, no matter how many commercials uh, the Liberal government runs on, you know, how efficient our energy system is or how or how efficient our health care system is, you know, people have the lived experience of being in this province. And, and one of my constituents from Kitchener-Waterloo said that one day she was sitting in the waiting room at the hospital for some eight hours and, and a commercial came on uh, from the Ontario government saying how, how, how they've gotten the wait times down. Oh, man. So that adds, that adds insult to injury. And, and I think the tipping point to, to your point, to your question, is that, you know, everybody gets a hydro bill every month and they see that, that their consumption is not going up um, and that they are trying to conserve. They're doing everything that they can as consumers to do the right thing to try to keep their bills down, but the hydro rates keep going up. And so that's something very tangible that they get every month. The gas plants, Orange Health, uh, the scandals, and then e-health, of course, the e-health scandal, which we're, I know you want to talk about as well. I mean, those those numbers were so big, Scott, that I don't think that people understood that that, that one billion is like thousands of hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So, but they do understand that hydro bill every single month, and and I think that that has been the tipping point for the people of this province. How can the Liberals bring, or or, or whoever takes power next time, if there's a different government, how how can how can how can this change? How can they bring costs down? Well, there there is no silver bullet, but there there has to be that we have to get to the base uh, cost of hydro. And you know, one of you know, Mr. Clark even yesterday was saying that you know we have high hydro costs because we got rid of uh, you know coal and that we found some efficiencies. That that simply is that's not that's not the full picture. The full picture is that this government has signed private for-profit contracts with companies across the uh, province, 25-year contracts to be to be exact. Uh, with a built-in profit margin for those companies. And that's what the Auditor General found out, is that when she reviewed the history of the Ministry of Energy, that those contracts to date, Scott, this, we have overpaid on our energy file by $37 billion. That means that the Liberals once again put the interest of those companies ahead of the, ahead of the people that were all elected to serve. And so it's, whoever, whoever becomes the next government is going to have to have a very you know, strong sense of going into the Ministry of Energy uh, with, with lo- looking at these contracts uh, through the lens of being fiscally responsible and obviously putting people back at the top of the list of, around priorities because, because clearly we are, we're all paying the price down the line and into the future, based on the Auditor General's report, that those contracts have caused a lot of pain to the people of this province. So, so there, but there's no silver bullet, so no one can say that they can cancel all those contracts, but we have to make sure that, um, we have to make sure that where there are efficiencies and where money is going that doesn't need to be going into those areas, that we have to address that. And so that will be the number one issue, I think, going into the next election. I think what bothers me most about this, other than, of course, paying through the nose, is that they're using people's vulnerability to the whole green issue to raise money for themselves. And to me, I find that this is turning people off green or making them skeptical, whereas it doesn't have to be that way. They're, because they're using it as a, as a vehicle to raise revenue, people are, are thinking, well, this is bad. And, and, and it doesn't have to be this way, but they insist if you're not with them, you're anti-green. Yeah, and and that that is definitely unfortunate. I mean, the smart money is on conservation, and and consumers should be rewarded for conservation. It's actually the most fiscally prudent method of actually addressing our our energy costs and our energy needs. Uh, But you just just sparked a, a thought for me is that, you know, I sat on the election finance committee as well all summer, and, you know, there's obviously a connection between the companies that have been awarded the contracts, the companies who've gone and paid the $10,000 for the fundraisers, and and they have benefited. I mean, we have raised these issues in the House consistently, and that piece of legislation is Bill 2 right now, and we're supposed to take that back out and travel it around the province, which I'm looking forward to because I think that I think the level of cynicism out there about about all public servants against about all politicians is that you know there's money is the driving force and that's because they they've witnessed it firsthand with this liberal government.
Okay, getting to e-health, what is your concern about e-health? So you know that uh, last week the Minister of Health wrote a letter to Mr. Clark uh, asking him to uh, to establish the valuation of e-health as, as a public asset, right? Now, e-health, of course, you'll also know, has been fraught with issues over the, uh, over the years. It is, a, it is a complex and problematic public agency. Um, but, uh, but as you mentioned, I mean, it was supposed to find some efficiencies around a centralization of uh, electronic health records so that if you go from one doctor to another, your records are flow with you and that the doctor, the medical staff, have the information that they want. Well, the, our, our concern around uh, the language that was in that letter to Mr. Clark is that it's the same language that they used when, they, when, they, when he was asked to, you know, evaluate and find the value of Hydro One and, and find out how much they could get for selling it. So uh, for the last two days, I've, I've stood in the House and I've asked the Premier and the Deputy, um, Premier Deb Matthews, you know why do you need to uh, why do you need to go through this process of finding out how much you could get to sell e-health in order to so-called modernize it? Now, for us, every time the Liberals say modernize, we hear sell. When they say broadening the ownership, we hear sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we hear recycling, we hear sell because because this is exactly what happened with the sell-off and the privatization of Hydro One. Like the Premier did stand in her place and say that they would not sell off Hydro One, as did the deputy premier. So for us, it, it, there is a serious matter of trust and also of credibility, quite honestly. I mean, today, even as I was going through my question set, the deputy premier sort of changed her tone and said, you know, we're, so she started off by saying, we're not going to sell, we're not going to sell. And then she said, you know, it's our responsibility to look at these assets. And so I think that I think given the track record and given the pattern of of this government, we have good reason to be concerned. And there are other groups that share our concerns, like the Ontario Medical Association as well. So if you are going, so is there chatter? Do you think there is chatter within the walls that is talking about privatizing this service? Well, I, there's two things at play. Like One is that this is obviously a government that is desperate to find the cash to try to balance the books by 2018 when the next election is. And uh, so we have a, you know, we do have an independent source, the financial accountability officer, who has has raised some concerns. Quite honestly, a red flag, even on the sell-off of Hydro One, saying it's true that they could potentially address the deficit by 2018, but because you're selling off this asset like Hydro One, you're actually losing revenue for yeah. for future generations. So. So this is a so this is a government that is looking for cash. They are looking for quick cash, and um, and and they have quite honestly this pattern that that demonstrates that they they are looking to sort of remove themselves from responsibility from a from a, a lot of issues that are happening in the province. Uh, yesterday, uh, Ed Clark said, you know, some of the stuff at eHealth is so good that people want to let. People want to license it and to do it in other provinces. And quite honestly, I don't believe that for a second. eHealth has been an agency that has been fraught with issues for the last 10 years, beginning with the resignation of Mr. Kaplan when he was minister. So, so we, have, we have very serious concerns about any time this government talks about modernizing or valuing public assets because usually the people lose when they start talking like this. Uh, obviously, as, as you mentioned, uh, th- there's been a history of, of problems, of issues with eHealth since it, it started. Can Ed Clark fix this? I mean, is it wrong to get an outside person like that looking at it from that well, what, standpoint? I mean, that's, that is an excellent question. I mean, why is Ed Clark, you know, in a little room off the Premier's office in the province of Ontario? I mean, this was a Premier who said that she was going to do, dif- do government differently, that she was going to be open and transparent, and she was going to lead from the activist centre. Well, we didn't know that there would be uh, an ex-banker at that activist centre, quite honestly. And and so what is his role in, like, what I is don't know, to be s- Clark, Sorry know? to interrupt there, Catherine. Catherine yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but, you know, can Considering the way they're blowing money lately, I don't know. It makes me feel a little bit more comfortable that there's someone like that, you know, at least watching over it. Now we don't know what the end result is, but better that than politicians. No, no offense, well, me, no well, offense let me given ch- there. Let me challenge you on that, Scott, because it was Ed Clark who, under the direction of the premier, 
uh, recommended, uh, you know, selling off uh, the majority component of Hydro One. The financial accountability officer has said this is a poor business decision. It's poor fiscal management of the resources that we have in the province. It will mean less money for health care and for education down the line. So the fact that we have a, a, a former banker here at Queen's Park advising Kathleen Wynne brings me no confidence whatsoever because we have a, a very tangible current uh, example and an independent financial advisor saying that this is not in the interest of the people of this province. So I think that if anybody questioned the fact that we have Mr. Clark here and that uh, even though he's working for free, I mean, everybody talks about the fact that he works for free. I have nothing against Mr. Clark, but his letter that he got last week from the Minister of Health asks him to, quite honestly, find the value of e-health. And if you're, gonna, if you're looking to improve e-health as an agency, why do you need to figure out how much you can sell it for? No, I agree. I, I understand what you're saying there. But the, I think it is also, uh, I don't know if you can paint them all with a broad brush because different ones have different approaches to doing this. I mean, the Conservatives talked about selling off uh, these same sort of things as well, but then they say now they would do it differently than what... Uh, the wind government has so well if anybody can tell me what uh, the the message box is for mr brown in the province of ontario because he's using a lot of our language and a lot of our lines and uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure if we actually know what mr brown's position is on anything uh, post election so uh, i i think i think you your point is, is that you know these are very politically uh, tense conversations that we're having at queens park you know my role as the finance critic is is to make sure that I follow where the money is going and so that because then you actually find out what the real priorities of the people of who are actually in power, right? And and you know when the Ontario Medical Association has, you know, says really and they they put this in their letter to Mr. Clark, they said the blunt reality is that we do not currently have a functional e-health system that benefits patient care. And so, for me, this government is trying to distance itself from e-health, and the best way to do that is to partner with a private company, perhaps, and and toss it off to the side. So you think they're just, in order to, to fix the problem, they'll just want to unload it? And and they're going to figure out how to get some money in the process. Uh, how would you get money from it if you weren't selling information? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, is personal records, right? Well, I mean... I hope that personal records are not on the table, and uh, the OMA also indicated that, you know, this government has had in the past the uh, very aggressive moves by the government to centralize patient data over the objections of the people who are actually on the front lines, which are healthcare specialists and doctors. Uh, I, I don't see how they could potentially do that, but there are systems that contain that information, and there is data that, for for instance points to like certain areas of the province where that where they could have high diabetes uh, uh rates of high diabetes uh, you know big pharma and insurance companies may find that information to be very valuable. That's why we have to be careful and we have to be cautious in how this information is protected uh, because it's your information, it's your health information, and it is valuable, right? Uh, Kathleen Wynne is quoted as saying, there is no possibility of the sale or the commercial use of people's health information. Are you convinced? Well, Kathleen Wynne also said that she would not sell off Hydro One, and she did. So that's my answer. Kathy, uh, Catherine Fife has been with us, NDP MPP for Kitchener-Waterloo and NDP critic for Finance and Treasury. Catherine, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure talking with you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Between baseball games, we're trying to keep caught up on what is happening with the uh, U.S. presidential campaign. And a lot of people, when this whole thing started, never predicted it would get to where it is today. And equally, with every passing day, you cannot predict what is going to happen tomorrow uh, with this campaign. It, it seems now that uh, slowly the uh, the Trump campaign, I don't even I don't even feel right saying this because it could be this guy still could be president, I think. I, 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 can, I, w- I would never bet against it. I wouldn't place a bet at all in this. So, uh, but it looks like he's he's starting to uh, to continue a uh, a consistent decline. We'll say that much. So he just the shackles are off, he says, and off he goes. And it seems that he is saying just about anything now. 
It started last week when he said that he, he thinks Hillary should take a drug test. He thinks she's on something and that she was on something for the debate. I don't know. Maybe some heart medication. Maybe some blood pressure. Who knows? I don't know. But where did this come from? And then it's, you know, he's been attacking the media forever, even though there is no better player of the media than Donald Trump. If Donald Trump was to call a press conference tomorrow, everyone and their brother would be there. Hovering on his every word, on his every clip. So he complained the media was out to get him. And then he complained that uh, Hillary's out to get him. Then he complains his own party's out to get him. Now he's saying that as well as all of that being rigged, everything's rigged, that even now the election system is rigged. Democracy is rigged. And there was a clip on the news last night of some redneck down in the United States looked like he'd had a couple of beers and he was ready to take on the world, if you know what I mean. And this guy was ready to pounce and take the law into his own hands if he thought that things were going the way Donald Trump said they might. Which is pretty scary. Because this has gone beyond a reality show. This has gone beyond getting ratings. And I just get the feeling he still handles this as if it's the same sort of show. Not realizing that he's taking some that are close to the edge and pushing them over. An article in the Toronto Star today, you can see it at star.com as well. Donald Trump may be a threat to global democracy. A column out of their Washington Bureau by Daniel Dale. Experts warn Donald Trump may be a threat to global democracy. Is he creating such a divisiveness that he's making terrorists giddy? Or at least Putin. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, a former speechwriter to Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, do, do you think that there is a threat to global democracy here? Has this joke gone on too far? Well, look, I mean, obviously his campaign is just completely falling apart. And as you said right off the top, he's just sort of flailing away and just punching as much as he possibly can and just hoping something sticks somewhere that brings Hillary Clinton's popularity numbers down and his up. But in terms of being a threat to global democracy, I'd I'd look at it this way. Number one, it's a little too early to tell. He's not president of the United States. He's not held a position of political power. And even with the crazy, at times, long-winded explanations he has or very general themes that he actually puts out about foreign policy and international relations when it's dealing with ISIS or terrorism or Russia or anything else, we can't be exactly sure how he would handle things if he were sitting in the Oval Office. The real trick is, A, whether the American people are convinced that he should be in that office to begin with, to make those decisions, and B, if they are struggling with it or if they just feel that he's just not worth putting in, not worth the risk, or they just dislike him for a variety of reasons, which are of the garden variety, and I think we could go on and on about it, does it mean that does it mean that actually he is more of the concern or that the republican party in general for having chosen someone like this as their candidate recognizing the fact that millions of people that Donald Trump brought in were not traditional republicans or even traditional conservatives do we hold the republican party uh, you know responsible for doing that and if that's the case that could change the complexion of the way politics is currently in the united states in the two houses, the House of Representatives and the Senate. You said too early to tell. Isn't that scary enough, the fact that it's even that close? Well, sure, absolutely. No, I agree with you. Um, look, it's interesting that, you, that some people are still saying he could actually come out of this. I am now no longer convinced after a few weeks of this nuttiness that he actually can become president. I just don't think it's feasible. It would take an earthquake of proportions. I can't even begin to explain to you on air that would change things. It would have to be a political revelation, say, from WikiLeaks or something else that just blows everything else out of the water, or that Hillary Clinton did some sort of unnatural act that we've never heard anything about Hmm. until now, and that changes the whole complexion of the way voters look at the election and who they actually want 
to become their next president. Michael, though, hasn't the way, isn't that, isn't that the way this whole race has been? In some ways, yes, I would agree with you, sure. Yeah. But look, a lot of people didn't believe that Donald Trump would get anywhere to begin with. Mm-hmm. When he started his campaign off, it's getting close now to 17 months ago, Scott, he was at 1% in the polls for the GOP presidential primaries. This has nothing to do with national numbers, just the primaries, the core Republican support base. That's how much he had. So he has basically taken 1% and led himself to a position where he could, although it's unlikely now, but he could become the next president of the United States. While some Canadians would say, well, that sounds kind of similar in certain ways to the way, say, Toronto Mayor Rob Ford built up his power base. He started at 4% mm-hmm. in the popular vote and eventually became mayor of Toronto in 2010. The difference really here is not even just the position of power, because obviously being the mayor of a Canadian city is very different than being the president and the, of the United States and the leader of the free world, so to speak, but also that Donald Trump was just not a politician whatsoever. This was a man who was completely outside the realm, Scott. He had never run for politics. If he had donated money, there were just little bits and sums over the years. He had talked about, at one point, being a candidate for the old U.S. Reform Party. That was an offshoot of Ross Perot's 1992 presidential campaign when he ran as an independent. But other than that, Trump had nothing going for him except his name, which was obviously very big, and his unbelievable understanding of how the media works, both electronic media and social media. So the fact that so many Republicans, or shall we say disgruntled Americans, actually gave him a chance to get this close is extraordinary in itself and actually kind of sad to watch when you think about the United States being the cradle of democracy and one of the great countries in terms of experimentations with liberty, freedom, and other principles, that it's actually come to this. And, it, you know, it's really kind of sad to look at. Uh, you bring up a valid point. You know, he has been afforded an opportunity that only someone in his, his position, the rich and famous, would ever have. There were others out there that were looking for a solid alternative to Hillary Clinton. Sure. Are they looking at this guy now and going, you blew it, pal. We gave you this chance and you screwed it up. At what point do, does the public start turning on Donald Trump for wasting a golden opportunity? Well, it, it, there's two parts of this, not to get too worried, uh, wordy about it. You have on one side the Republican Party and the many different factions that are in there, from mainstream conservatives to some of uh, the, the Trump supporters who, as I said, were not traditionally conservative or maybe had never voted Republican in their life before, but just happened to like Donald Trump's message of being an outsider, and they kind of resonated with it. I think that right there and then you're going to see a massive, massive implosion within the Republican Party that will happen probably as soon as the presidential election ends on November the 8th. So that's going to be one thing, because there's going to be a lot of heads that are going to roll and a lot of finger-pointing about how they got to this point in the first place. But as for the American people, and I think that's a fair point that you bring up, I think some Americans will look at this as a lost opportunity for someone who was not a traditional politician to get into a position of power. Exactly. Because Hillary Clinton, in any other election year, would be toast. She would be destroyed easily. And Trump was supposed to be the common man's candidate that was taking on the establishment, and look what happened. Well, and part of the problem also was, of course, is that he is part of the establishment. If you have this whole notion of that there's a one percenter in the United States, well, there's Donald Trump. No matter how many billions he does or does not have, and God knows if we'll ever find out the answer to that one way or the other, it certainly he had a lot more money than most people, and he also had more stature. People of that sort of wealth and stature rarely ever run for politics, and if they try, they're rarely ever successful. You know, in the United States, there's a little bit of a history through the Rockefeller family, if you want to go that route, where Nelson Rockefeller, who was one of the only Republicans from that historically wealthy and democratic stronghold of a family, actually became somewhat successful in politics. Trump was kind of an anomaly that way, but you're right. I mean, what is astonishing is that if you had had a Marco Rubio, a Jeb Bush, a John Kasich, even a Ted Cruz, they would have wiped the floor with Hillary Clinton based on all the information that's come out about WikiLeaks, all the lies that have been associated with her based on Benghazi, her email scandal, and other things. 
and all the stuff that is coming out dribbling about the Clinton Foundation would have wiped her out easily, and that actually would have been a good thing, in my opinion, for the United States. Unfortunately, when you have two candidates that are so lousy for so many different reasons, a lot of people are just going to hold their nose and probably vote for Hillary Clinton because they see her as the lesser of the two evils. Hmm. Not the best reason to do it, but that's probably going to be the rationale. The devil you know rather than the devil you don't know. Exactly. Uh, what do, do these sort of annex, you know, as I mentioned in the, in the preamble, uh, the rigged, the, the parties are both rigged, both of them yeah. are rigged, the media's rigged, the, now the electorate or the, uh, the, uh, the election system is rigged. How do these antics affect the electorate? And I think that's what this column was trying to talk about was, you know, this is creating divisiveness. This is taking people that are close to the edge and pushing them over. Yeah, and in many ways it is. Look, a lot of the commentary that Donald Trump comes from, which unfortunately I think is linked to a lot of conspiratorial sites and thinkers like an Alex Jones or someone of that nature, who your, your listeners can go look up. I don't even want to give him a, that much airtime because yep. he's not on my political side whatsoever. He's just a, a fringe element way off to the end. Irrespective of where it's coming from, it actually makes democracy, or at least American democracy, look a lot worse. Because when Donald Trump uses a word like rigged, he's not necessarily talking about the election on November 8th has already been predetermined. His use of rigged, as his uh, vice presidential candidate Mike Pence sort of alluded to, in a much more rational, reasonable fashion, is that he feels that everybody is basically against him. And you kind of alluded to this. Senior Republican leaders. Um, you have people within the party who won't stand with him. Governors, senators, and others who will not endorse him. And basically, he just feels that he's being dumped on by them and that the national media, the mainstream media, is just sort of blasting away at him all the time that he can't get a word in edgewise. A lot of this is rubbish, and we know that. But that's the narrative that he wants to use, and he feels that this will probably cushion or at least soften the blow of how badly he'll probably lose on November the 8th, because he can always say, yeah, I lost the election, but it's because of the system, the yeah. way it's operated, the people who are against me, the factions who dislike me. Nobody gave Donald Trump a chance, so to speak. Does he not see, though, how that could be, in some areas, uh, an invitation to violence? Uh, you know, you're constantly blaming others for your downfall. Yes, absolutely. Well, look... Some of the language, pardon me, that he's used in the past has kind of talked about that, you know, sort of alluding to... You Bringing know, up the Second to... Amendment. Right, exactly. I was going to say that, the Second Amendment people. That's absolutely right. That's, you know, whether he was or was not saying it is a debate for another day, and people have already actually had it already. The fact is the f- that he actually left it open like that, and if you truly believe that words matter, he left that sentence so open-ended and that thought so open-ended that it could lead to violence, quote-unquote. Will it? Most likely not. But the fact that he just left that little image means to me anyway, Scott, that he doesn't care. He doesn't give a damn what actually happens after November the 8th. All he cares about, obviously, is himself, and we get that part of it, but he doesn't care about what happens to the Republican Party. He doesn't care what happens to the electoral process. He probably doesn't even care what the supporters of his campaign will do as well and the people who vote for him. I don't think he wishes violence on the United States. I'm not suggesting that, but I don't think that's of primary importance to him. What matters to him is that he comes out looking as good as he possibly can, that if he can continue to be an important figure, if he doesn't win on November the 8th, he will remain you know, very prominent within the media, within society, etc. And what happens, happens, which is incredibly scary to think about. Hard to believe anybody living on the planet Earth would think that way. But sadly, without knowing him at all, and I've never met him, that's my sense of what he's doing. Do you have a feeling that he has put too much emphasis on the show and not enough on the real-life implications in, in the circles that he's traveling in. I mean, it's, 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 you know, if he was, if he was, if he was a part of a game show or a reality series, he'd be knocking it out of the park. Yeah. But is he not intelligent enough to realize that that can't fly in real life? Well, there are two things at play there. I mean, number one is that as a billionaire, and let's assume that Trump has a few billion to his name, he's lost fortunes and won fortunes. We know he's gone up and down 
economically through most of his life. But let's say he has a few billion right now. It's very, very difficult for a wealthy individual or family to identify with the common man. He made himself out to be, as you correctly suggested, a man of the people. Yet it's very, very difficult for someone of that wealth and that stature and that notoriety to be a man of the people. It just doesn't really translate very well. It usually has to be someone who's either more at your level or who has a long history of thinking like people like that and communities and societies and towns and cities that have that sort of instilled sense of value in them. And because Trump really has sort of led this jet-flying life and has been a jet-setter most of his life, it's very hard for him to do that. But if he actually tried to, to refer to your second point, if he tried to make this whole political campaign very similar to the reality TV show that he obviously was very successful with, The Apprentice, yes, you're right, he'd probably be doing better. Yes, he would be able to probably resonate with more potential voters and at least get issues out. But he has actually in many ways been sort of playing this game because if there's one thing about the 2016 presidential election that I think a lot of people will remember, it was very, very short on policy. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have not really talked about policy. They've basically been talking about everything else, including Trump's tax returns, 1973 lawsuits that were long since resolved, and other things that are so frilly, like the Clinton Foundation the Trump Foundation, etc. And because of that, people have been talking about everything that's off the radar about politics instead of saying on the political radar and looking at issues that affect both the country, both domestically and internationally. We really haven't talked all that much about the size of government tax policy and various other things, except for these little bare-bone facts where we know, for example, Donald Trump will have three levels of taxation for Americans if he was elected president, well, Hillary Clinton would sort of do more of the same as, as uh, Barack Obama has done in his past years and in, in eight years in office, but would probably change the tax code to some degree. But that's about all we get. In past presidential elections, we actually have structured debates. Is that the media's these. fault, Michael? No, I don't think it is the media's fault. The media has tried at times to gear it back to that. I just think you have two very powerful people at the helm of each of the major parties, and they have been able to control the narrative with the help in certain cases, at least Hillary Clinton's case, of some of her senior advisors, to push it in a completely different direction. Hmm. I mean, look at the, the easy example are the first two presidential debates. Some of the questions that have been asked, yes, have dealt with personality or issues that have been involved, you know, that have sort of picked up during the campaign from the 2005 video involving Donald Trump and other things. But many of them have tried to push it towards a discussion of tax policy or yeah. coal or various other things in hopes of getting some sort of a policy discussion started. But in each and every case, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have been able to take the question, twist it around, and move it eventually into a different direction where it becomes more about the show, quote-unquote, than it does mm. about the political landscape itself. That's a skill, and I mean, certainly we have politicians in Canada who can do that too, but it's a real skill that the media just can't control, and if they speak, try to speak up above the candidates, as many of them have tried to do in the past during these two debates, it always comes back to haunt them, so they're stuck. Michael Tobe has been with us, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for your insight. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.